Welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. If you're an ambitious woman who wants to advance in leadership, then this podcast is for you. This podcast is co-hosted by Nikki Barua, digital innovator, serial entrepreneur, author, and speaker, and Monica Marquez, senior corporate leader, ex-Googler, and diversity expert. From inspiring stories to cutting edge strategies, you'll learn how to develop the skill set, mindset, and tool set to get future ready fast and accelerate your success. Hi, I'm Nikki Barua, your host for today's episode. Continuous learning is the most valuable currency for career success. Careers no longer follow a simple path from learning to earning to retirement. Lifelong learning is an indispensable skill for every individual and organization. Meet Eileen Schloss, a multidimensional strategic and transformational human capital expert who reveals exactly what it takes to get to the C-suite and why continuous learning is the key to success. Eileen recommends managing your life to make sure that you're constantly learning and adapting to change. In this episode, Eileen shares the pivotal moments in her career and how learning and preparation helped her achieve extraordinary success. She provides guidance on how to position yourself for your dream opportunity and shares a story about how believing in herself and speaking up in her interview with Steve Jobs landed her an executive role at Apple. Eileen also demystifies topics like succession planning and executive compensation, and provides step-by-step guidance on getting board positions. Eileen has worked with CEOs and boards as a global chief human resources officer and a senior HR leader for companies ranging from major global brands to pre-IPO businesses needing to scale. She is a public and private board member, senior advisor, and human capital expert at Alteryx, Advent, and CCC. Visit imbeyondbearers.com where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with Eileen. Hi, Eileen. Welcome to Beyond Barriers. It's so great to have you on the show today. Great. I'm looking forward to it. Well, uh, let's dive right in. So you are in the tiny minority of women who have made it to the very top in the corporate world and also serve in numerous board positions. Um, What our audience would love to learn from you is how did you get started and how did you build that career? Tell us, uh, walk us through some of the highlights. Well, I'll start off um, in the very early stage. I had no idea that I was going to end up in corporate America. I actually finished high school thinking I was going to be a medical office assistant. And I went to a, um, a trade school for medical office assistants. And when I went out for my first internship, I realized I was not cut out to be in the medical community. So funny enough, that school brought me back as a recruiter. And that's exactly how my career started as um, exposing me to human resources, if you will, recruiting. Mm. One thing led to another. I left um, that private school and then got into corporate America as a recruiter. So that's, Hmm. uh, it was a funny twist of fate that I had no idea early in my career. And I didn't really have anybody either at school or in my Hmm. family who was giving me good career advice. I kind of had to figure it out as I went along. So speaking of figuring it out, um, you know, 
there are lots of people that probably had a similar start to their career as you, but very few, even statistically, have sort of the career achievements that you now have. What were some of those pivotal moments, decisions, or uh, perhaps even uh, the leverage that helped to accelerate and gave you those, um, you know, advancement opportunities? I was fortunate to start my corporate career with Hewlett Packard, and I had great mentors, great leaders. The moment I started there, my manager said, what do you want to do next? Which was a shock to me, right? He was always talking about career advancement. I really didn't know what part of human resources I wanted to be in. So he allowed me to go out and look at different functions in the HR arena. And I decided compensation was an area that I really excelled in and also employee relations, which are two very different skill sets. One is very people focus and one is very analytic focus. And so it was at that time at Hewlett Packard that I ended up going back to school. And I finished my undergraduate while I was at Hewlett Packard. They helped with tuition assistance. That was a terrific benefit that I took advantage of early in my career. This was before kids, obviously. And um, it was a uh, it was a lot of work to be working full time and working on an undergraduate. But I will have to say that it paid off in volume by putting forth that effort. And you'll hear my theme throughout my conversation today is all about continuing education, no matter where you are in your career, your age, your uh, position, even as a board member, I'm constantly on webinars and I've become certified as a uh, national um, uh, association of corporate directors. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of board members do that. So it's for me, being well-educated and knowing my content has been a key theme throughout my entire career. And investing in yourself to stay at the forefront. It's true. I've been fortunate that I've had some financial support from the companies that I've worked at, but they don't do a lot as most companies have a tuition assistance program. You'll have to put forward a lot of your own financial support to do that. But in addition to the financial support, it is really managing your life around making sure that you're constantly learning wherever it is, whether it's informal, um, online learning or formal finishing up a degree, whether it's an undergraduate or a graduate degree. I remember years later, um, well after I finished my undergraduate degree and I had moved to a couple of different companies. And I, at the time I was with Tandem Computers, which was the hot company of the time. And in human resources, I was running the um, organizational development, training and development function. And I brought in a woman to address an audience on how as a an adult, a working adult, would you go back um, to uh, finish a degree, whether it was an undergraduate or go with a graduate degree. And I remember somebody in the audience saying, but gosh, I'm already 35. And you know, I've, I have an undergraduate degree, but I don't have time or I don't think that really does a graduate degree help me at this point. And the woman, her first name was Sandy, said to the audience, well, you're going to be 40 anyway. So why not be 40 with a graduate degree versus not? Well, I have to tell you, it was almost as if that comment was made directly to me because it was literally at that point that I decided to go back to school and get my graduate degree while I was in a very 
high profile director level job. I was traveling worldwide. Uh, 60% of the time I was on the road. And, and by that time, I had young children married, and I still made it a priority to finish my uh, graduate degree. But I was over 40 when I finished mm. my graduate degree. That is incredibly inspiring. And it's also the perfect segue to dive deeper into taking you back to that time, because what you just described is something that so often um, you know, people might say, well, that's just more than I can handle. I can barely keep up with my day job, let alone yeah. sign up for a graduate degree. And I can barely keep up with my family responsibilities or motherhood. And you did it all at the same time with humongous <laughs> responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Walk us through perhaps some key success habits or, or techniques or something that allowed you to make it happen, but also the mindset which, which instead of fearing it, you jumped right in. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny. Um, I guess I'm blessed that I sleep really well. <laughs> that, that's, that sounds funny, but I've, I've had um, global responsibility since my early years. And no matter what time zone I'm on, I'm able to get a full night's rest. And wow. as, as silly as that sounds, it's really about taking care of yourself. And mm -hmm. I was fortunate while I was working on my graduate degree that I was traveling so much because I had a lot of airplane time to read my case studies, to do mm -hmm. my homework and that sort of thing. So I, I can appreciate that if I was home full time with the kids, uh, luckily, I also had a supportive partner. He was great in taking care of baths and homework while I was doing my homework. Yeah. And I can appreciate being a single mom. It would be that much more difficult. But it has to be a commitment. It's a short period of time. If you think about how long it takes you over the years to get through a graduate degree um, when you're doing it while you're working. And then you look back and say, oh, my goodness, I finished it. And now I have all this, quote, spare time. How did I ever do that? Much like uh, for anybody who has gone from having one child to two children, right? When you have one child, you can't imagine what it's going to be like. How could you possibly have time for two children? And right. then when you have two children, you figure out, okay, this works too. <laughs> so it's, uh, somebody once said to me, if you're looking to get something done, uh, go to a busy person because they will always figure out how to make time to prioritize whatever they think is important for their next um, activity. And, and I think that's the key is you have to prioritize what you think is important. Otherwise, it'll never get done. So true. So um, as you scaled up throughout your career and stepped into bigger and bigger responsibilities and, and certainly managing large organizations, how did you um, set yourself up for success as you are stepping into a brand new role? Mm -hmm. uh, I would say a couple of things. Relationships are a key element of any successful venture. And if you think about, for those of you who are managing people or are already at an executive level or sitting on boards even, if you look around at the people that have been successful, there's something about the relationships that they build that has helped them get into their positions or have been successful in those positions. And I will say almost every single job I ever had as I was progressing through my career, I didn't feel like I was qualified for Mm. And I say that in the sense that many times people feel that, 
well, I can't apply for that job because I haven't done X, Y, Z. And I was always like, I think I can do X, Y, Z, even though I haven't done it. And I will, um, I'll share a story. Uh, you may know from my profile, I was the head of human resources at Apple Computer for a little, um, almost two years. And I was interviewed by Steve Jobs. And I remember the, the day that I went for the interview, I just interviewed with the executive staff. I wasn't supposed to see Steve that day. And the towards the end of the interview, somebody came in, I think it was Steve's executive assistant and said, Steve would like to spend time with you today. Can you make time? And I said, well, of course I can make time. So, uh, however, he wasn't in the, uh, in the corporate office. He was up in um, a Palo Alto sub, um, sub office. So I jumped in my car and as I was driving up to meet him, the recruiter called me and said, oh my gosh, Eileen, I can't believe you're going to be interviewing with Steve today. I had not prepared you to meet with Steve. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, he can be a really tough interviewer. You know, he likes to throw what he calls, you know, bozo questions out to people and see how they respond. And I said, the recruiter's name was Mike. I said, Mike, look, I can only be who I can be. And you can't, you know, prep me to have a certain amount of responses to an interview. Hey, if if nothing happens, great. I got to meet Steve Jobs. Yeah. So fast forward, I go in, I meet with Steve Jobs. It was a 45-minute interview, which I thought was very short. And I found out from most people, he only had a 15-minute interview for people. But during the course of the interview, towards the end, he said, no, I think this job is too big for you. And it was the first time I was, I was interviewing for the top human resources executive position. And I immediately responded and I said, well, I disagree. And here's why I disagree. I think I'd be a great addition to your executive staff because of, and I listed four or five things. Mm -hmm. And I knew that recruitment was a very key issue for Steve. So I really zoned in on recruitment, even though at that point in my career, I had never led recruitment. I'd been a recruiter, but I had never led recruitment. And so I just pushed back and said, I think I have some good ideas and, and here's why I think I could do it. So I got in the car and I called my husband. I said, oh, my God, that was the worst interview I've ever had. But at least I got to meet Steve Jobs. And, yeah. you know, it was really tough. And then the recruiter called me on my way home and said, well, Steve wants to offer you the job. I said, are you kidding me? I said, that was the worst interview I ever did. And he said, no, what he liked is that you pushed back, mm. that you didn't acquiesce or fall back when he was challenging you. So I would say earlier in my career, one of the things I learned when, when I was actually at Tandem Computers, and I think most people have been in this, in this um, situation where in those days it was a beer bus, but let's say it's any social event where you are in that kind of extended circle where you're with the most senior executive or you're with one of the senior executives, you're more junior person. Maybe I, I was mid-career at the time. And you're thinking, you know, what can I, what can I say that would sound, you know, important or profound or, you know, be a good conversation starter. And so I said to Jimmy at the time, I was in, um, I had responsibility for training and development. So I said to him at the time, Jimmy, what do you, what do you think makes a really good leader thinking that that was, you know, some profound question, which it wasn't. <laughs> and his response is, well, let me tell you about my leaders here. And the only person, and I'm blanking on her name now, the only person that tells me the truth is this woman who was running a part of engineering, and she was his only female on staff. 
He said, she's the only person that tells me the truth. He goes, everybody else tells me what I want to hear. And that's what I think makes a great leader. Mm. And that always stuck with me because when you are in an important business meeting or you're doing a presentation and you know darn well that what you'd really like to highlight is something that's either not in your presentation or something that's sensitive, speak up, say what's on your mind, be authentic. That's truly what being authentic means Mm. is saying what is on your mind that you think is um, relevant to the conversation versus saying what you think somebody wants to hear. Mm. That is incredibly powerful. And also the lessons that anyone can learn from your experience, even in the Steve Jobs interview, (laughs) is not letting where you've come from and what you've done in the past limit the possibility of what you can achieve in the future and being able to articulate and package your competencies and experiences and passion in a way that um, helps someone else solve a challenge for themselves. And I think that really highlights how powerful that can be because there's so much data, you know, that speaks to how, you know, women will not even apply for positions if they don't check every box. And um, you were in that scenario, but you didn't let that hold you back. And it Mm -hmm. led to an incredible opportunity in your career. Exactly. And I spend a lot of my days now interviewing potential board members or potential CXO level candidates. And there is definitely a difference between the way the men come across in the interviews versus the women. And I've actually coached a couple of the women when they say things like, well, I haven't done da, 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 da. I say, don't lead with that. Lead with, here's how I would do that. Here's how I would manage that function. Here are the lessons that I think are transferable from this work that I've done now to this role that you are um, talking to me about. That is very actionable advice. Thank you for sharing that. Um, So on that note, you know, when even before they get to the point of having that conversation and saying, well, I haven't really done that, but what advice would you give to someone who is looking at a potential dream opportunity and sort of leaning out before they even (laughs) consider it? How do they get past that mental barrier and, and not let that get in the way, even if it's contrasting that with perhaps how men, you know, might do it or just successful people in general approach it? Well, I think we all have to understand that everybody's fearful. Everybody has some level of fear about something. And whether it's fear of putting yourself out there and getting rejected, I can tell you earlier in my career, I was rejected rejected for many, many, many positions. And I said, okay, well, that one didn't work. And another one will. And lo and behold, when I did land a particular position, I looked back at those other positions and thought, thank goodness I didn't get into one of those companies or one of those roles. This is the one I was meant to be in and really feeling good about where that ended up leading me. So I would say, you know, don't feel like you're the only person that's fearful. All of us have fears. And what's the fear of rejection? If you think about most successful executives, oh my gosh, they have story upon story of being rejected, right? Whether it's, you know, somebody who's now a famous author or somebody who's a famous um, uh, actor or actress, they talk about years and years of rejection. So why is it that some people are wired to see that rejection as a learning versus saying, I'm going to give up, I'm never going to be able to do it. So I think looking across the table at people or sitting around the table with you, 
realize that everybody has some level of fear in them and just pushing through it. And, and once you've tried it and realized I can, you know, I can survive this fear, I can survive this setback, I think it makes you even more resilient to go forward. Absolutely. I mean, failure is just feedback and <laughs> every bit of um, success builds that evidence that, you know, increases your confidence. Um, but you can't get there if you're never taking any action. So that's so true. And I will say over the years, uh, you know, everybody talks about the fear of public speaking. Mm -hmm. right? And I have my fair share of uh, fear of public speaking, no matter what the size audience. But I have often found as long as I know my content, that I'm the one that put the content together, I feel much more confident in what I'm presenting. Mm -hmm. I've been in situations, and I think a lot of mid-professionals and senior leaders um, are in the, a situation where somebody else has put your presentation together for you. Mm -hmm. And here are your talking points, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I found when I take somebody else's material that they have created for me, I get up to speak and I'm less confident, and maybe I don't sound quite as um, on point as I should. So when I've been in situations like that, and this happens at um, global sales kickoffs, where you've got this great marketing team that helps put together your presentation materials for you, I take those presentation materials back to my room, whether it's a hotel room or what have you, and I literally go through and redo them even though I'm not going to use the ones that I redo, but I redo them on my own laptop so I can put them in my voice. And then when I get up to speak about the nice professional ones that are being um, presented on the big screens, I feel like I know my content much better. So there's no substitute for doing your homework and the hard work. Very true. What if you could pinpoint the invisible ceilings limiting your success? Imagine having clarity on your strengths and barriers so you can take action and gain unstoppable momentum to advance as a future-ready leader. Well, that's exactly what the Beyond Barriers quiz will help you discover. You'll get your personalized score based on the 25 essential elements proven to accelerate success in the digital age, so you can understand what's holding you back and where to focus your efforts. The Beyond Barriers quiz is completely free and takes just a few minutes. Go to imbeyondbarriers.com slash quiz and take the quiz today. So let's talk about um, something else that you're an expert in, which is succession planning. And you are um, an advisor to uh, various CEOs and boards and uh, have done that throughout your career. You know, one of the um, challenges, both for organizations as well as women that are looking to advance is how do you align yourself in the path of that succession? Mm -hmm. um, what are things that you could share in terms of how succession planning is looked upon from a, you know, design standpoint that would be valuable framework for other people to be aware of? Yeah, good questions. So looking at succession planning in three um, different tiers. So as a board member, uh, one of our critical responsibilities is making sure that we have a successor for the CEO, whether it's an emergent emergency or uh, a normal um, evolution of that CEO retiring or moving on, that sort of thing. So as a board member, that that's one element. But then 
at the CEO level, when I was inside as the head of human resources, and I worked very closely with the CEOs that I reported directly to, and we looked at successors for each one of the direct reports. So now you're going down a, a level or two and looking at, you know, who are the people? And sometimes the um, first person that comes to mind is a person that has had lots of exposure, has built relationships, but they may not be the very best qualified person for that uh, position. So I think it's incumbent upon whoever is leading succession planning to make sure that they're building a pipeline with um, good profiles. But as a person, you also need to make sure that you get exposure to the right people at the right time. And sometimes that might mean you're a layer down. I'll take, um, let's take a chief marketing officer that reports to a CEO. Mm -hmm. And we're looking for a potential successor for that chief marketing officer. Well, when you think about the various functions that report to a chief marketing officer, it could be anybody from, you know, demand gen, which feeds the sales cycle, all the way to um, investor relations or um, uh, Marcom. Mm -hmm. So, three very functionally different positions mm -hmm. that report to the head of marketing, which one of them is going to be the person that we're going to look at to be a potential successor? Well, the person that probably gets the most exposure to the CEO is the person who is running investor relations because they get to see, they get to talk to the CEO all the time. They get to talk to the CFO, maybe the general counsel. So they're getting a lot of exposure to those executives mm -hmm. versus the person who's running demand gen really interacts mostly with the sales organization and feeding them mm -hmm. pipelines, so to speak. So how does that person get exposure to the CEO and the CFO and the general counsel who are going to be making these decisions about who a potential successor is? So I would coach that person who's running demand gen to work with the chief revenue officer who does report to the CEO and have that relationship be the one to get him or her exposure to an executive staff meeting, to do a presentation so that they get the visibility. Maybe the chief marketing officer is not allowing that person to come in and do executive presentations because they're the ones that are doing all the executive presentations. But if you have a mentor or a sponsor outside of the person that you report directly to who has that power and influence with the CEO, those are the relationships that you want to tap into. And I could, I could use that same scenario for the CFO role and the, the executives that report or the senior people that report to the CFO. Maybe they could parlay one of the relationships in marketing or sales or even engineering in the tech world to help get them more exposure. So it's not always looking at your direct leader to give you that um, exposure or opportunity. You, you should be um, paralleling the rest of the executive team in those relationships and what you are contributing to them when you're asking for some visibility at a meeting. Mm -hmm. So it's got to be not always asking for things that you're, you're not delivering to them. So essentially, get more allies and advocates um, that will be there uh, that know you and will speak for you when you're not in the room um, that will position you in that. So outside of visibility, what other criteria, 
what other things in terms of performance or other things should someone keep in mind? If they had to say, you know what, I'm at a mid-career level, mm-hmm. I'm absolutely uh, determined to make it to the C-suite and I want to find the fastest path to get there. So I want to make sure mm-hmm. I'm you know, aligning my uh, experiences, my competencies to that. How? What are some of the top things you would guide them on? Well, I hate to go back to my education theme, but <laughs> I think um, I think it's very important, whatever your profession is, that you become the best educated about what's happening in your profession. And if, if you look at marketing or um, I'll use that as, as another example, in marketing today, the whole digital revol- revolution, what is happening with um social media, all the digitization of companies. And if you are not the one, maybe you're not the chief marketing officer, maybe you're a level or two down and you are learning more about the future of marketing or the future of digitization, and you can be bringing in that knowledge into various meetings. You're not just doing your job. You've got your goals and objectives. You're checking off, you know, that you've done the following activities this quarter. You're doing something over and above what your leader is asking you to do and deliver. So again, very important to stay on top of whichever profession you're in. What are the leading indicators of happening in the, of what's happening in the future? Um, I live online as far as uh, even today as a board member, every single day I read all my um, all the briefs that come out from three different board organizations. It takes a lot of time, but I can tell you I'm up on what's happening right now with um, the COVID executive compensation issues that have happened this last year. So when I go into my compensation meetings, I could talk about what other companies are doing or what the indicators are from the um, what they call shareholder activists um, or proxy advisors, what they're looking at as far as evaluating a company's executive compensation practices as specifically as it relates to COVID. Well, if I hadn't been attending those webinars, reading up on the um, the board briefs, I wouldn't have that knowledge. I would just be attending the meetings and having the level of knowledge that comes from, you know, those various meetings versus bringing in outside uh, viewpoints and information. So again, constantly look, whatever profession you're in, outside of the goals and objectives you have for knowledge, um, increasing your knowledge about what's happening. Mm-hmm. As you're describing that, what comes to mind is, again, using the marketing metaphor of, you know, you have to become the most valuable and in-demand product with a visible brand that, uh, you know, can create value for everybody else. And if we think about ourselves that way of staying at the cutting edge and to, um, you know, think about value creation Um, and visibility, we're positioning ourselves for that line of success. You know, I would add to that, especially uh, back in the day when we were all working um, inside an office, and it's very easy to just get sucked up every single day. You go into the office, you get online, you're you're doing your emails, you go from meeting to meeting, you're trying to get some of your own staff work done, but you don't get to that until you get home at night. Then you've got, you know, home responsibilities and you get on this treadmill of how do I break my pattern? And I'm working through lunch, by the way, typically, right? When I'm uh, in the office, how do you break that habit of getting into that routine versus, you know what? I, I see that 
um, six weeks from now, there's a conference that I'd like to attend. Well, you put it on your calendar, looks pretty good six weeks from now. Then as you get closer and closer to the time, you're thinking, there's no way I can take a day off to go to the conference. You know, I'm so swamped. Stop yourself from that self-talk. Put it on your calendar, keep the commitment, go out to the conference. Go to the conference because first of all, you're going to be gaining current information about what's happening, uh, preferably in your industry, but you're also now building a network of new people. I can't tell you how many conferences I've been to where there could be 500 people in the conference, but you're typically sitting at a table, maybe with eight or 10 people. Mm-hmm. And you exchange business cards, you get to know them, maybe they reach out to you for help, or you've reached out to them to network. And every single person that has reached out to me after a conference, I always follow up with, regardless if it's something that, you know, frankly, they may not be in uh, my same domain or an area that I'm interested in. I still find a way to follow up, connect with them. If they need help or are asking for something, I do my best to give them a resource And sure enough, I've now extended my network. And even though those people may not look like they can help me in the short term, who knows? I may I may run into them, you know, two or three years from now when they are in a very different position and I'm now um, uh, connecting with them. So networking, making sure that. You do get out of your office. And, yeah. and again, one of these days, we actually will be back in our offices at least some period of time. And it is easier in today's environment to log into virtual um, conferences. But what we lose is the networking effect. Mm-hmm. So anytime you can get outside and get exposed to new people, I think it, it just helps build your network. Absolutely. And it opens doors to opportunities you would never know existed otherwise. So true. So um, let's talk about compensation, um, including executive compensation. You've alluded that, uh, you know, you've shared how you've been an expert in that. And you're also someone who uh, leads compensation committees for boards. Um, That is an area that most people don't know much about. So demystify executive (laughs) compensation for us. How is it and what are the drivers and how can someone, um, you know, make sure that they're set up to make the most? Right. Uh, It's a great question. And if you think about it, most, even the most senior executives that report to the CEO don't get much exposure to what's happening with executive compensation, other than they know what their compensation looks like. Right. So if you think about it, it's not that complex. There's uh, basically three elements. You have your base pay. Everybody mm-hmm. knows about that. You have a short-term incentive, which is typically referred to as your annual bonus. Mm-hmm. And then you have a long-term incentive. Mm-hmm. Now, long-term incentives and short-term incentives. Let me take the short-term incentive first. The short-term incentive, your bonus plan, what your executives, including your head of HR and your board, are trying to do with that short-term incentive plan is make sure that they are rewarding and incenting you for driving whatever the key metrics are for that business. Mm-hmm. In most businesses, it's revenue growth and profitability, or it's sometimes referred to as EBITDA, mm-hmm. earnings before interest tax and um, expense. So it's very important to understand Even if you are not the chief revenue officer, what are those revenue goals? 
what are driving our revenue elements, uh, how much of it is international versus domestic, learning as much as you can about that revenue goal. And then on the flip side, the um, short term in, in the short term incentive is typically tied to profitability or earnings um, EBITDA. Yeah. So once again, learn how to read a, um, a P&L statement and figure out what are the drivers to profitability. And I can tell you, unless you're in the heavy equipment business, the number one driver is the cost of labor. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of HR people are very much more in tune to what's happening in a PL statement than you might believe, mm-hmm. because they see the cost of labor really drives the, um, uh, the majority of the expense of a company. And then when you think about all the things that uh, tie into a cost of labor for you know, payroll tax and benefits, all the ancillary things that drive that, it's very important to understand what your profitability drivers are. Then you start looking at you know, things like pricing and margins on your products and the other things that drive profitability and understanding if you are, if your leader sits across the table and says, I'm really delighted to give you your, your um, increase today, you know, base pay increase. And this year's bonus program is tied to the following metrics, revenue and profitability. And you go, uh-huh, great. And then you take that away you need to really dig into what are the drivers to each one of those metrics and then how can you contribute, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So then on long-term incentives, this is where it gets a little more tricky. Long-term incentives mean some form of equity. So you have um, stock options, time-based restricted shares or performance-based restricted shares. Really, again, it's pretty simple, three elements. So Mm -hmm. stock options, Whatever the price is today that you got your stock option at, that means you it has to increase in order for you to have value. Mm-hmm. So again, you want to understand from a company perspective, what are the levers that the investors are looking at that are driving value for your company? And some companies, it's all about top line growth. So these are high value, high growth opportunities. In some companies that are more mature, the investors are looking more closely at profitability, cash flow management, and earnings factors rather than growth factors. So it's important to know in your own business, what are the levers that are driving your stock price? Then on the um, restricted stock, it's either time-based, I'm going to vest this every year for the next three or four years. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless. And in most tech companies, they have gone from four-year vesting down to three-year vesting. Mm-hmm. Then performance-based shares are the most complex. And there are many different elements that you can tie to earning your stock based on performance. The most common that was um, that has been used over the years is called total shareholder return many times um, referred to as TSR. So as your stock increases, the value of your performance share increases. But typically, in order for it to uh, vest, a company decides, we think our total shareholder return is going to increase by X amount. Well, if you don't reach, even though the stock may have gone up, but you haven't reached the performance metric that the board and the CEO and CFO set, then your shares don't vest. Mm. So performance-based shares are really a way of driving executive behavior for the long-term 
metrics of a company versus what do we want to get done this year? That's your short-term incentive, your annual bonus. The long-term incentive is usually tied to a three-year business plan. So it's very important to understand what is in that three-year business plan. And I'll, I'll make a comment about executives who are looking to serve on boards. Mm-hmm. Most of the work on boards is done in a committee before you even go to the board meeting. And there are typically three committees, compensation committee, a nomination and governance committee, and an audit committee. Well, unless you're a financial expert, you're probably not going to serve on the audit committee. So that leaves two other potential committees for you to be prepared to serve on. Compensation committee, many times we find financial people serving on on, um on compensation committees, but HR people are terrific on compensation committees for the reasons I just mentioned. Even if you're not a CF uh, in the financial or HR community, how do you prepare yourself to be a good compensation committee member? You're probably not going to chair it, but you want to be a member. Once again, go out and learn as much as you can about executive compensation. And there are many, many different ways for you to do that. The last committee is a NOMGov, Nomination and Governance Committee. And this is the committee that actually runs succession planning for the board and for the CEO. And they also look at adding new board members. So they're, they are the, the team that goes out and recruits new board members. So those are the, the two key responsibilities for the NOMGov committee. I'll pause there. You uh, provided such valuable information that, uh, and you answered two very big questions in the same one. So uh, let's just parse it out um, for our audience. So first of all, going back to the uh, compensation planning, um, that was terrific just to understand the whole structure of it from an organization standpoint. I have a follow-up question to that, and then we'll get to the uh, question about getting on boards. You shared how a company looks at executive compensation and what drives behavior and the return for the individual. Um, if you are, um, you know, it, if it's a woman who's, uh, you know, highly experienced and looking for that next C-suite role in, let's say, a um, high-growth tech company, mm-hmm. but she's never really negotiated compensation before. Mm-hmm. and doesn't even know what to ask for beyond the typical base salary and annual bonus. Mm-hmm. How, would you, well, how would you coach her to think about even the entire bento box of options to ask for <laughs> and how to right. go about uh, you know, positioning herself in the best way possible? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think historically women are um, too timid to be negotiating packages. <clears throat> and so typically when they get an offer, they either say, great, or they might say, well, geez, could it be this or that? And without really a lot of knowledge. So once again, very important to do as much homework as you can. There's so much information today that you can find on internet about executive pay practices at different companies. And I would say when you interview with it, with whatever company you interview uh, with, if they are public, make sure you uh, look at the proxy because all over the proxy is what they call the CDNA analysis, which is the compensation analysis of all the top executives in the company. And you can see how their pay is structured uh, and what the elements are of their short-term incentives and their long-term incentives. So again, do your homework, get on the internet. My other advice is 
if you, let's say you're not in HR, but you're in the engineering function or you're in the finance function or you're even in um, the marketing function, build relationships with your HR people. Right? <laughs> I can't tell you, <clears throat> excuse me, how many times I tell exiting executives to use me when they're looking at new opportunities. Mm. And I can give them a guide on if something is within range or not in range. And this is particularly for uh, executives who are going to startups and are wondering, well, they're giving me this percentage of equity or half a percent or a quarter percent. Is that really a meaningful amount of equity for this job? And what I can provide them with is some general market information, but also the stage of the company, um, of the uh, pre-public company, will make a difference as to when they are giving out lower or higher percentages of equity. So if you don't have a relationship with one of your HR people, I would say uh, get to know them, get to uh, befriend them. Hopefully you can offer something for them in addition to what they may be able to offer to you. But I can't tell you how many people I help on an ongoing basis when they reach out to me and ask about, geez, I'm getting this offer and I need to respond. What do you think? And I can let them know where to uh, push back, counter offer, and, you know, be very positive about it. Right. And and that's absolutely key is, uh, you know, not being timid about it, of just simply saying, figuring out, you know, doing your homework, determining the benchmarks and positioning yourself in the best possible way. So, And I always mention when you are ready to negotiate and you say, I really appreciate this offer. Uh, here's what I was expecting, you know, base pay or on the bonus. You know, I'm uh, I'm joining Perhaps I'm joining in January and I'm going to miss the bonus payout for the company that I've, I'm leaving. I'm going to be missing out on a, call it $30,000, dollars $50,000 bonus, whatever the number is. You may be asking for a sign-on bonus. Say, if you want me to join in January, I'm foregoing a, a bonus in March. And if you could offset that with a sign-on bonus, and here's what my bonus would have been. And I understand you may not be able to completely match it, but can you help me offset it? So again, knowing the levers that you have to work with, a sign-on bonus, increasing. So I've had a number of executives that said, well, for the first year joining, I want to have a guaranteed payout on my short-term bonus. And sometimes we say no. And sometimes we, you know, depending on how competitive that uh, talent is for us to get, We'll say, okay, first year, we will guarantee at least 100% payout on your bonus, regardless of what happens in the company. Wow. And boy, for the people who did that last year, the beginning of the COVID year, they did get 100% bonus payout, even though their company may have not been paying out bonuses at all or paying it out at less than 100%. Wow. This is such valuable information. I mean, thank you for sharing that. I can tell you every listener is going to find this so valuable because this is information that often people are just afraid to ask or don't know who to ask. So let's um, go back to the board question. And you shared, um, you know, that if you want to get on a board, at the end of the day, you got to figure out how the board op operates, which is through the core committees and which committee are you best suited to, mm -hmm. suited for. But what about... Um, 
how to even find out or position yourself for those board roles. Uh, we come across so many incredibly talented and highly experienced C-suite women yeah. leaders right. that are nowhere in consideration for board roles and don't even know where to begin. Right. Good question. And I'm dealing with that right now because I'm recruiting for a number of board positions. One of the um, companies that I consult with, Advent International, which is a private equity firm, they are very committed to improving diversity on 24 North America companies. So I'm working with several of them who are ready to add new board members Mm -hmm. to their portfolio. And I have reached out to a number of different places I, I, if it's okay, if I mention some of the, these resources uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, there's an organization called Athena Alliance. It is a membership organization and they will screen you as to whether or not you are at the ready to be a member. Then another one is called Him for Her. And this is a really interesting organization. What they do, it's a nonprofit that a couple of times a year, they will, and in today's environment, they're doing it virtually, they will pull together CEOs or CXOs or other board members to host a luncheon or a dinner a couple of times a year, and they will invite a particular number of women at those uh, dinners or luncheons. They may or may not have a board seat open, but now they're getting exposure to executives, and they're also helping the um, the candidate think through what kind of questions am I going to be asked if mm-hmm. I'm interviewing for a board seat. The other organizations are uh, one is called Board Prospect and another one is called Board List. Okay. Those are four right off the top of my head. A number of them are membership only. You do have to put out some money to get yourself uh, on their uh, profile and they will screen people to make sure that you are at at the level where you could be considered um, a board ready person. Mm-hmm. I attended an organization um, about oh it must have been two years ago because it wasn't during COVID last year, so it was two years ago in San Francisco, and it was I believe it's called Women on Boards is the organization, and there were probably no less than a thousand women in the. Uh, conference. And I sat at a table with a number of very smart mid-career women who were wondering how they could get on boards. And I had to actually tell them that unless you have been experienced at an executive level, it's almost impossible for you to be considered as a board member because you haven't had the scope of responsibility Mm -hmm. to look at whether it's a global operation or even if you're not a global company, that you can look at as a senior leader all the elements of running a business, even Mm -hmm. though you may have responsibility for one part of the business, when you're sitting in those executive staff meetings, you're hearing from the chief revenue officer, you're hearing from the chief financial officer or the chief marketing officer or the head of product development, the challenges that are going on in their organization. And you as an executive are looking at alignment and contribution to those teams. Mm -hmm. So if you're two or three or four levels down from that experience and exposure, how would you be able to sit on a board and help a board help the management of that company think through the issues that they're facing as a uh, as a management team so when you think about the role of a board member it is to provide advice guidance 
to the management team because you've been there, done that. You've seen the movie before. You can help give them some direction in a certain way. And it's also to make sure that you are um, strong. You have strong governance to protect the shareholder value. Mm-hmm. That is one of the primary con- uh, responsibilities of a board member is to ensure that the company is operating in the best interests of the shareholders who are essentially your investors in your company and making sure that they're going to get a return for their investment. And so for someone who is mid-career, um, they are you know, not in a, um, at an experience level where they can qualify for that, but knowing what's required for board roles and how to create value and take responsibility for those roles, it's positioning yourself in your career and gaining those experiences today and rising up to that level to be able to you know, serve on that. If that is in your future, then that's what you need to align yourself to. And I would also encourage folks to look at nonprofit boards. Now, I will say that when we are interviewing for board members, uh, having nonprofit experience is okay, but not a um, not a key criteria. But as a mid professional, serving on nonprofit boards gives you exposure to governance issues, mm-hmm. gives you exposure to financial issues. So it just gets you another level of information on how a board actually operates, even though it may not be either a public or privately held um, commercial board. Fantastic. So um, this has been incredible, Eileen. Thank you for sharing such great information. Um, as we wrap up, what are your final words of wisdom for all the listeners and especially to all the women that are ambitious and want to be future ready, mm-hmm. want to position themselves and accelerate in leadership? What is your advice? Well, I think a couple of things. First of all, don't be afraid to move. I will say that I'm interviewing some candidates today that have stayed inside great companies for too long. They have been in a company 8, 10, 12, 14 years, and they've had progressive responsibilities and they've moved up. Unfortunately, they just have the perspective of that company. Mm. And so it's very important during your career, not too, not too quickly, because that's another thing we look at. We don't want you moving around, you know, every year or two, but don't be afraid to move and go out and interview, even if it's something that you think you may not be qualified for or interested in. I've often, as a matter of fact, there was a great presentation that was done years ago when I was in grad school by the founder of um, Docu, I think it was DocuSign who came in. Mm -hmm. And he said, when he went out to uh, raise money with investors, he made a huge mistake. And the mistake was, one of the companies which was on Sand Hill Road that he was hoping to get an uh, audience with, which he did, was one of his first presentations. And he bombed miserably because they were asking him questions that he never even thought of. And his advice was, go out and whether interview or do your pitch talk to a company that you don't even want to work for or that you don't want to get money from, Maybe you'll get money from them anyway, and maybe you'll get a job offer anyway that turns out to be a good one. But go out and practice in in an environment that is much lower risk for you. Mm. So, And don't be afraid to move. I will say that it's really important. And again, my theme of education, 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 whatever you're in, learn as much as you can about your profession and uh, stay current. That's one of the questions I always ask executives. How are you staying current? Mm. Instead of just focused on the company that you're in today. 
Well, thank you for sharing such great advice because it's going to help a lot of people mm-hmm. listening to this get all new perspectives if they haven't already learned from that and help them stay current and get future ready. Thank you so much for Thanks. being on our show and great to meet you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Barriers podcast. There are thousands of podcasts out there and we are so grateful that you've chosen to listen to ours. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and tell a friend about it and subscribe to get new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com where you'll find show notes, links, and the best way to connect with our guests. See you next episode.